0: One of the big stories this week, the iconic Staples Center in Los Angeles will have a new name come Christmas Day. In a branding deal worth $700 million, it will now be known as Crypto.com Arena. Crypto.com allows people to trade in popular cryptocurrencies and boasts over 10 million users. For more on how this is the latest move to get mainstream recognition for cryptocurrency, we'll speak to Anna Hertenstein, reporter at The Wall Street Journal.
1: This is the cryptocurrency industry's latest move to try to gain more recognition in the mainstream. As you said, it's a really iconic venue, and I really love the symbolism of going from staples to crypto, going from the kind of paper economy to the digital economy. Definitely, and yeah. um, essentially, Crypto.com is a cryptocurrency brokerage, an exchange They're based in Singapore. They were founded in 2016, and they've been spending a lot of money recently to try to get more awareness, more recognition. They had a commercial with Matt Damon recently, and now this, this is their latest move to try to essentially introduce themselves to the public.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. They have other high visibility sponsorships, deals with Formula One, UFC. I think they purchased a, on another basketball team, the Philadelphia 76ers, their uniform sponsorship patch. So they've been making a ton of moves to increase their name there. You mentioned, obviously, they're like a brokerage. What else do they do? They, I think on their website, they said they're the fastest growing crypto app. They have 10 million plus users. What kind of services? What do they all do there?
1: So they allow their users to trade uh, crypto, everything from the more recognizable ones like Bitcoin to ones that are lesser known. They also let people trade things like NFTs and other digital assets. They do all kinds of stuff.
0: We're talking about cryptocurrency companies trying to make a splash on this. They're not the first one. There was uh, FTX Arena. They bought the mm-hmm. uh, the stadium where the or the arena where Miami Heat play. So this is kind of the trend, as you mentioned, just the, making a bigger splash on the scene in sports. In particular, they see as a, a big way to do it, to open themselves to a broader audience.
1: Yeah, exactly. I interviewed their CEO and he said exactly that. He sees sports as a really good avenue to, to you know, get their brand out there. And I think that the scale of the deal, the $700 million that you mentioned, really shows the financial firepower behind cryptocurrencies, or behind the industry, I mean. Bitcoin hit a record high earlier this month. So these you know, companies working, working in the industry have money to spend.
0: Definitely. And, you know, to that point, right? So there's a lot of money behind all of this. I mentioned that FTX Arena, that naming rights deal was $135 million. I don't know how many years that deal was worth, but we're talking $700 million over 20 years. Obviously, the Staples Center is so iconic, as you mentioned, but this is a huge jump from that other deal right there.
1: Exactly. And it does show that the owners and operators of the stadium clearly think that Crypto.com will still be around in 20 years. It does give a kind of almost like a, a sense of legitimacy or trust to the industry, thinking that this will be around.
0: Right, exactly. And, and and to that point, you made a mention in your article about how sometimes these uh, branding deals don't always go the way they're supposed to, and and sometimes the deals turn sour and naming rights have to be given back. Tell us a little bit about some of those examples.
1: Yeah, I mean the classic example is Enron. I mean we all remember what happened to them. And back in 2002, they had to give back the naming rights to a stadium in Houston, where they had to go around and essentially remove their logo from the ballpark. And so, uh, yeah, as you said, there are some examples of these naming rights deals going sour.
0: Yeah, there was also uh, uh, something that happened with the Patriots Stadium, Gillette, you know, Gillette Stadium. They had to take it over after uh, something went wrong with their previous deal. So, yeah, just the uh, bigger signals, you know, for the cryptocurrency market, as I mentioned, just... So many more people are getting to it. We know big investors are, but, you know, a lot of people throughout the pandemic really started trading heavily in cryptocurrencies, altcoins, all sorts of stuff. And people are just looking for a lot of different ways to start trading and investing there. And uh, I mean, this is just a a big landmark deal, it seems like, for cryptocurrency, the industry in general, really.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the kind of companies that have these kinds of deals previously have been banks, big telecoms you think about the companies that put their names on stadiums and now it's apparently crypto as well
0: well we'll see how that all uh, shakes out i know a lot of fans in los angeles have kind of sounded the alarm and saying we're still going to call it staples center you know i'm always going to know it has staples so it, it'll be a a transition for sure to crypto.com arena anna hertenstein reporter at the wall street journal thank you very much for joining us
1: thanks for having me on
0: President Biden has been on the wrong side of polls recently amid missteps and verbal flubs. According to a new Politico Morning Consult poll, just 44 percent of voters approve of his job performance and worse yet, 48 percent say he's not mentally fit. For more on the bad poll numbers for Biden, we'll speak to Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico.
2: If you look at Joe Biden's record, his poll numbers really started to kind of collapse after uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal. And uh, then there was the COVID surge and troubles of the economy and concerns about inflation. But, you know, throughout, he's never quite recovered. But one of the things that's kind of seldom discussed and has been little polled is Americans' perception of kind of Joe Biden and his health. But the reality is, is, like, Joe Biden is the oldest president to be sworn into the White House. He's going to turn 79 on Saturday. So we asked a battery of questions concerning his health and mental fitness, the questions we'd asked of President Trump. In the 2020 elections and also of Joe Biden, what we found is since October of 2020 to now, the percentage of American voters, U.S. voters, who have concerns about President Joe Biden's health have really kind of skyrocketed. Fifty percent now say that they're concerned or they they don't think his physical health is good. Forty percent say it's, it is good. That's you know, a negative 10-point margin for him. Yeah. Uh, it was positive for Joe Biden by 19 points in October of 2020. So that's a 29-point shift. It's pretty big. And it kind of reflects what you hear a lot of people talking about. And even Saturday Night Live, they had a skit a few weeks ago where they had uh, old Joe Biden, that new Joe Biden. And the old Joe Biden joked that the new Joe Biden wasn't quite, quote, lucid. And there are a lot of people who are talking about it. We decided to poll it and see what people thought.
0: Yeah. And, you know, obviously, let's look at some of the evidence that we have out there, right? We haven't heard anything from the president's doctors, obviously. But you see him out there on the, uh, you know, selling the Build Back Better plan and all that stuff and making his public appearances. You hear some uh, flubs when he's speaking, kind of drifting off a little bit. (laughs) I know some people have even said when he starts whispering is kind of funny. Um, uh, So you you just see him out there and he doesn't look like he necessarily has a lack of energy. It's just a, a lot of flubs, verbal flubs that are being observed by people.
2: Also understand, in October of 2020, when voters were asked the question about mental fitness and physical fitness, Joe Biden actually did better by those metrics than Donald Trump did. Joe Biden wound up winning the election, obviously. Now, we haven't compared the two, but Joe Biden is now president. And one of the things that you can say is that after the Afghanistan withdrawal, that's when a lot of news media attention, cameras, eyeballs, hearts and minds were tuned to what the president was saying. And a lot of people got more of a good look at Joe Biden, and there's, a, there's polling now that suggests they don't necessarily like what they're saying. They don't necessarily like exactly what they're hearing. Now, there could be other reasons that people are having these negative impressions of him, but on a variety of metrics, is he a strong leader? By about a nine-point margin, people say no. And there are these various problems that he's, he's starting to develop. Uh, now, the degree to which people are just having a negative feeling about Joe Biden and expressing that negative feeling whenever they're asked a question, well, we don't quite know. What we do know is that people are souring on him kind of across the board.
0: How does this look when you break it down along, along party lines? Uh, obviously, I'm, uh, Republicans probably say, yes, he's, uh, you know, his health's not doing so good, mentally unfit, all that. And Democrats is probably the opposite. Independents, how do they feel? How, how does this break down along party lines?
2: That's the problem that that Biden has. Independents by about a 17 point margin. Don't think his physical fitness is good. And, you know, so basically, like if you were to break things down simply, the Republicans are going to say bad things about Joe Biden. The Democrats are going to say good things Uh, to the degree independents are swing voters. They're breaking against him by pretty big numbers.
0: Do we see anything else in the poll that uh, stood out to you uh, aside from these uh, things we're covering now?
2: It's not quite in this poll, but when you start to look at the public polling that's out there for Joe Biden's approval rating, among Democrats, the portion of the Democratic base that is starting to sour the most proportionately on Joe Biden are African-American voters. And in our Politico story, I quoted a Republican pollster who had been conducting a recent focus group about a public policy matter in a southern state, didn't want me to say which one, uh, he provided a transcript for me, because at the end of this policy focus group, he asked the voters, hey, we just want to talk about Joe Biden. What do you think of him? Now, these are all African-American focus group members or participants. And there were a few folks who expressed a lot of reservations about Joe Biden. One woman who said she, she wasn't sure if she was going to vote for Joe Biden for his re-election. She says, I don't even know if he's going to be alive.
0: Mark Caputo, national political reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: In health and science news, we'll tell you about an Argentine woman known as the Esperanza patient. She has become only the second documented person whose own immune system cured her of HIV. She is what's known as a so-called elite controller of HIV in which the immune system is able to suppress the virus from replicating to very low levels without using antiretroviral treatments. For more on the Esperanza patient, we'll speak to Benjamin Ryan, contributor to NBCNews.com.
3: This is a woman, as you said, she's about 30 years old and she lives in Argentina. She has a daughter that she had last year and she's pregnant with a second child now. Uh, Her first child was born HIV negative. She was diagnosed in 2013 and there were some irregularities in the way that her HIV test came back. So it just seemed that she wasn't developing antibodies to all the different components of the virus, the different viral antigens. So that was sort of a red flag to practitioners in Argentina. And gradually she got connected with a researcher down there who got connected with another one who's a specialist in this type of research at the Reagan Institute in Boston, which is affiliated with Harvard and MIT. And these researchers used very sophisticated technology to comb over one billion of her cells, and that included 500 million cells from a placenta after she gave birth. In fact, that was a kind of an amazing turn of events that she had given birth and so they were able to get a bunch of her own tissue. And they were unable to find what's called any replication-competent virus. And what that means is that any virus that was spliced into the DNA of the cells that would be able to produce viable new copies of HIV. So effectively, they found that her immune system, through some means that they don't know exactly, had basically killed off any last virus that could have repopulated the virus within her
0: body. Yeah, I mean, that's totally amazing at that point. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, they don't know, right? That's what they're looking into now. But that gives people hope, Mm -hmm. right? And you mentioned the article, there's an estimated Mm -hmm. 38 million people globally Mm -hmm. living with Mm -hmm. HIV right now. So this is a Mm -hmm. Something that's supremely Mm -hmm. important. One of the things about the Esperanza patient, and, you know, she's uh, going, uh, she wants some anonymity with all of this, right? That's why they're calling Mm -hmm. her that. But um, there's these group of people that are so-called elite controllers of HIV, an estimated one in 200 people. And this is kind of where some of this hope lies in, right? To figure out Mm -hmm. how these people are able to suppress the virus. Mm -hmm.
3: Right. And I don't want to say people should have hope that perhaps there are one in 10 million people or one in 20 million people whose body just happens to be able to do this magnificent feat of, of beating HIV on its own. But where the hope is, is the notion that researchers can try to figure out what happened and in some way, harness it or replicate it through some sort of therapeutic means. And as you said, so the Esperanza patient, as well as another woman by the name of Laureen Willenberg, who's a 67 year old in San Francisco, they both are members of the class of elite controllers, and these are people whose immune systems, through some means that they don't quite very well understand just yet, are able to control viral replication without the need for antiretroviral treatment. It's possible they have some sort of very aggressive killer T-cell response to the HIV infection that just isn't something that we see in other people. So this is something that researchers have been studying for many years to try to better understand. And so, Laureen Willenberg. And the Esperanza patient, in both cases, it seems that their T cell response was so strong that it was able, as I said, to basically kill off any replication-competent virus that's hidden in these cells.
0: I mentioned that there were a couple of other cases Of men who research said they were able to stop the HIV in them as well. That was Mm -hmm. kind of a different case though. And we heard about them already. There was an American and then a a one from uh, London, but they had cancer, a very specific cancer. They received stem cell transplants and that's kind of how they got over it. But those are some uh, other interesting aspects to it too, because it's not, they can't, they were able to functionally cure them, but They say that's not really a cure for the most amount of people. They had an extenuating case with cancer. The stem cell transplant is pretty strenuous on the person. Mm. And that's not really a course of treatment for a lot of people.
3: What happened in those cases, it was two men, as you said, each had cancer. They had a kind of blood cancer, lymphoma or leukemia in each case, which was treatable through a stem cell transplant. And what happens at a stem cell transplant is essentially you're given somebody else's immune system. First, they have to ablate or kill off your own immune system, which is a very devastating, toxic process. And then they give you someone else's stem cells, which repopulate your body, hopefully, with immune cells from the other person. Now, there's a small percentage of people from European descent who have a natural immunity to HIV. Their immune cells lack what's called a certain co-receptor onto which HIV attaches in order to begin the process of infecting a cell. So if your immune system lacks these co-receptors, HIV basically can't get in the door. It sort of lacks the the knob to turn the door to get into those cells and that's what happened in these cases with these two men. The first case was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009, the guy named Timothy Ray Brown and the second case was announced in 2019 again, as you said, a man in London. And I just spoke with a researcher of that case study in the past few days. And he was able to tell me that whereas before he thought the man was probably cured of HIV in this case, now he thinks he was almost definitely cured. And the reason why they have to be very cautious is because you just never know after a certain amount of time if HIV might come roaring back. And the reason that is, is when HIV infects a person, it establishes what they call the viral reservoir. Now, there are all the sort of active immune cells that will affect that are going around and doing active things. And then there are what are called long-lived stem cells or long-lived memory cells. And those are cells that are not replicating new copies of the virus, but yet are still infected. And because they're not actually working through the machinery of making new virus, the uh, antiretroviral therapy can't See the virus in those cells and can't go after them because it only works when the virus is being replicated. And so that's why it can hide for long periods of time in these reservoir cells. And then if you were to go off your antiretrovirals after a time, they would sort of come back to life and start repopulating the body with new virus.
0: And that's why it's so difficult to get a handle on HIV. It can sit dormant for so long and be suppressed well enough and then pop back up. And uh, Mm. you you, you wrote another article talking about kind of the road ahead for an HIV cure and mm-hmm. HIV cure research. They call it cure research, but people are very hesitant mm-hmm. to use that word because of what yeah. you just spoke to. It can pop up. So uh, tell me a little bit more broadly about some of these mm-hmm. other ways of trying to cure HIV. Mm-hmm. There's multiple fronts that they're doing. You know, there's mm-hmm. gene therapy, something called kick and kill, something called block mm-hmm. and lock, and then uh, right. other vaccines that they're hope that can work on this.
3: Right. So there's so much that's going on in the genetic field these days with CRISPR-Cas9 in particular, which is essentially a kind of scissors that can sniff and edit different gene sequences. So, you know, ideally, you'd have some sort of therapy that you could inject into somebody and it would go in and it would find all the HIV in the cells and sniff it out. That's a lot easier said than done, of course. So essentially, they're trying to find ways that are less toxic and more scalable of recapitulating what we've seen in the, the American man and the London patient, as he's called, but you know that would not require an actual stem cell transplant and chemotherapy and, and that kind of thing, which you know would not be ethical to give to people if they weren't already facing a fatal blood cancer. So that's one avenue. And so kick and kill is essentially trying to use some sort of agent that would wake up all of those resting cells that aren't replicating new copies of the virus so that then some other therapy, that's the kick part, and some other therapy with the kill far would come in and kill the cells that are infected. There's been a lot of failures in that realm of research over the years. It's been pretty discouraging. And a similar, somewhat opposite way of doing it would be block and lock was essentially trying to figure out where those cells are that are harboring latent copies of the virus and then just keep them from ever waking up again. And so in a way, that seems to be what some elite controllers have done. What they found in research is that it seems that their immune system has preferentially killed off cells in which the virus is capable of replicating. And what's left over is virus that's then in, spliced into the cellular DNA in kind of a remote dead zone that's too far away from the levers that start up replication to be able to have any potential effect on the body and to be able to spew out new copies of the virus. And then again, there's other ways of sort of hopefully prompting the immune system to kind of do a better job of going after the virus. And that would be something along the lines of a therapeutic vaccine.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is amazing. I know we've made uh, huge strides in all of this and uh, just great news Mm -hmm. out of the Esperanza patient. It gives a lot of Mm -hmm. people hope, you know, that the immune system can do it on its own. Benjamin Ryan, contributor to Mm -hmm. NBCnews.com. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.